Hello, AJT readers. Uh, welcome to the April version of AJT Highlights, where we will be discussing four articles that are coming out in AJT in April. Um, as always, I'm joined today by Roz Mannon from the University of Nebraska. And we have a special guest today, Dr. Philip Halloran, uh, the previous initial editor of AJT, uh, who's going to be discussing one of the papers that is going to be highlighted in April. So welcome to both of you. Thanks very much. Uh, would you like me to discuss the paper? Um, yeah, just a sec, Phil. We're gonna. I'm going to go through um, the, the the table of contents or the list of articles first, and then you'll be you'll be up to discuss your paper uh, first off the bat. And we all also wanted to just um, uh, our thoughts and prayers are with everybody in transplant and everybody in the medical field dealing with the coronavirus. Um, I know that AJT highlights will be, uh, we, our plan is to work on some type of podcast in the near future that's going to present some articles in dealing with coronavirus in, in transplant and maybe non-transplant. But we're just, again, our thoughts and prayers are for you all. Um, so our, this is the, uh, this April, these four articles, I'm just going to list them and the authors, and then we'll dive right in. So the first article will be Dr. Halloran's group, uh, The Molecular Phenotyping of Rejection-Related Changes in Mucosal Biopsies from Lung Transplants. And there's a company editorial by Arat et al. And then I'll be talking about the next paper, which is also in a lung transplant paper, Pseudomonas aeruginosa and Acute Rejection independently increase the risk of donor-specific antibodies after lung transplantation by Kolkarni et al. with an editorial by White and Snyder. And then uh, Roz will be doing two papers, uh, one in kidney transplant, which is insight to multiplex immunofluorescence analysis of the inflammatory burden in kidney allograft rejection, a new tool to characterize the alloimmune response by Calvani et al., with an editorial by Bellamy and Prost. And then finally, recombinant human Adam TS13 treatment and anti-net strategies enhance skin allograft survival in mice by Wong et al. with an editorial by Broad and Mooney. So without further ado, uh, Dr. Halloran, thank you for uh, being a part of this and we'd love to hear about your paper. Well, thanks very much, uh, Josh and Ross. Uh, and thanks very much for all of the AGT readers who've tuned tuned in. You know, lung transplantation is one of the uh, is probably the Achilles heel of all of organ transplantation. Our uh, long term results are are poor, and part of that is the poor uh, diagnostic tools that are available to the clinician in lung transplantation. Right from the beginning, it was always difficult to read the transbronchial biopsy. The transbronchial biopsy is invasive. It causes uh, pneumothorax and hemorrhage, and it's uh, you require uh, 10 or even 15 bites to try to get an adequate representation of the tissue. And even then, some of the biopsies result in uh, a negative result. The pathologist can't read any. 
And the correlation between uh, the readings in transbronchial biopsies is really very poor, uh, with the A lesion having a kappa value of about 0.2. Remember, zero is a coin toss, and one would be what we're having as the ideal, and the B lesion has almost no reproducibility. It's very difficult to read. And if you've ever had a chance to look at these transbronchial biopsies, you'll see why the pathologists are really challenged uh, to deal with the material they're presented with. So we thought that uh, we could probably do better by getting molecular assessments and using the system that we worked out in kidney and heart and translating it into the lung. So we uh, started off with the transbronchial biopsy. We found the transbronchial biopsy single pieces can always be read. We did find that there was bite-to-bite um, -bite variation between single pieces, which was considerable. And um, it means that uh, while, we, while we won't need 10 pieces, uh, we probably should have two for transbronchial biopsies, but these studies are all IRB uh, approved, consented, prospective clinicaltrials.gov studies, and so we were constrained initially by only getting one piece. So we did find that there is T-cell mediated rejection readable in transbronchial biopsies. Um, so far, we cannot find evidence of a consistent antibody mediated rejection phenotype. Or of, or of important DSA associations in the population of uh, lung transplant patients we're getting. So we started a, a study to look at the mucosal biopsy. Now, the mucosal biopsy can't be read by histology. There have been some efforts to read it, and people have said that they see some things in the mucosal biopsy, but it has not been standardized. The mucosal biopsy in a proximal area of the bronchus would be much safer so we uh, lead author on this is Kieran Halloran, who's a respiratory physician who does lung transplantation. Um, and uh, Kieran and Shafka Shabji from Toronto um, discussed this and decided that the place to biopsy the bronchus would be in the third bronchial bifurcation, which is remote from the anastomosis, and so you don't get anastomosis artifacts, and is but is still very safe compared to the transbronchial biopsy. So. We proceeded to do with this study, which is a study of, mu of mucosal biopsies. We call them 3BMBs, or third um, bronchial uh, bifurcation biopsies. And uh, the third bronchial bifurcation biopsy can be done quite safely during bronchoscopy, and it does not require stabbing the lung with a piece of steel, which causes pneumothorax and hemorrhage. So. Uh, we've, in this paper, we show you the population, which is coming from an international consortium that's been working with us, um, and we're very grateful to all of these people who, who all had a lot of input into this, and um, particularly the St. Louis group, the Toronto group, and the Melbourne group, uh, as well as the Edmonton group. So. Um, we collected these uh, from consented patients. We got we mainly got one bronchial biopsy piece. We found that um, we characterized the histology, we characterized the DSA. We asked them for whether or not they thought this was antibody-mediated rejection, which is a difficult diagnosis to make in the lung, and they, they only identified a few where the clinician thought this is suspicious for antibody-mediated rejection. So this is the story in lung transplantation. Uh, the clinicians really can't identify antibody-mediated rejection. So we then we go to table one and table two in the paper, which outlines the population. So we subjected the population to microarray analysis, then took the microarray results, and we characterized the, um, the rejection-associated transcripts, which we found in kidney and in heart. And we just characterized, we, we identified how much of those is expressed in each biopsy. 
And then we did uh, principal component analysis, and this is uh, figure one, and archetypal analysis, which assigns to groups. And the analysis really d displays a group which goes off to the right. This is in panel B, which is um, which is uh, which has high expression of rejection genes. These are the red symbols. There's also a, an inflamed panel, oh, an, an inflamed group, which is we're calling here R3 late, which has uh, expression of genes which we associate with atrophy fibrosis, uh, immunoglobulin transcripts. So we're not sure. It's another inflamed phenotype. But we think that T cell mediated rejection really is the R, the the uh, A2 group in this figure. There are other things going on which we don't fully understand sources of diversity in the biopsy. Some of it may be diversity in the tissue bites themselves, but we've, we've come to the conclusion that the bite-to-bite -bite variation in the transbronchial biopsy is less, and that T-cell-mediated rejection can be identified confidently in the transbronchial biopsy. We then followed on to show you the, uh, the molecular characteristics of the T-cell-mediated rejection, which are very similar to T-cell-mediated rejection in hearts and kidneys. And uh, also in livers, we've got an AJT paper coming out uh, in a few months, which show you the liver uh, T-cell-mediated rejection phenotypes. So you go now to, um, to uh, table uh, three and four, which show you the relationship between the archetype groups, these clusters of and the gene expression, and then the principal components in the gene expression. And we uh, identified, we showed that the there is a correlation between, now so remember, we're doing a transbronchial biopsy, but that patient is also undergoing um, a mucosal biopsy. So we found that the what we're finding molecularly in the transbronchial biopsy correlates with inflammation in the mucosal biopsy, so that there is a correlation between what has been the diagnostic standard in the transbronchial biopsy and the mucosal biopsy. So that's very reassuring. That's figure two. Over the time course, we find that the mucosal biopsy becomes inflamed over time, and there's more and more um, disturbing inflammation in the, mucosal, in the mucosal biopsy, and these are the time courses we're showing, and that's particularly apparent in the uh, T-cell-mediated rejection red line in panel C, which is in just in the indication biopsies as opposed to the protocol biopsies. And... Um, so we're that is the same sort of time course of T cell mediated rejection with a period of, of activity of a high probability followed by a, some attenuation as time goes on. We uh, went on to show that the uh, time course suggests that there is an inflammatory process laid in these uh, in these mucosal biopsies, and that. Uh, we have found subsequently that there's a relationship between the T-cell mediated rejection archetype and graft survival that we we haven't we weren't able to show in this paper, but a new paper which is being prepared is showing we're finding relationships to graft survival. Mm. So to summarize, the paper shows that you can biopsy the mucosa, that it's much clinically safer. That allows you to biopsy sick people that are now the problem with uh, with the transbronchial biopsy is you really can't use it in someone who's got respiratory compromise. The very person who's who you want to biopsy can't be biopsied because it will kill them. And the mucosal biopsy represents not just a, a uh, an alternative which is safer, but it looks like it's technically superior. 
And there's an advantage also in biopsying the airway, since the airway is really the Achilles heel of the whole thing. The interesting thing about the correlation between the histology of the transbronchial biopsy and the, the phenotype of the mucosal biopsy, which can only be identified molecularly, is that the molecular changes in the, in the um, three BMBs, the mucosal biopsies, correlate with the B lesions, the airway lesions in the transbronchial biopsy, suggesting that there really is a process going on in the airways, small and large, which is probably better identified in the airway biopsy, which is in mucosal biopsy. So we're very excited about the results and we intend to continue this. Uh, it would present to the clinician a chance to have a better tool which can be done with far less tissue and which can be uh, can actually potentially predict what's going on in the patient more accurately and maybe we'll be able to change outcomes. So thanks very much for an opportunity to talk about this and thanks to all the authors, particularly the first author, Kieran Howard. Great. Well, that's, that's fascinating work, Phil. I'm, my, my, I was sort of the first thing that kind of came to my mind being a liver transplant person is um, how much of these these transcripts in the lung, particularly in the mucosal, the tissue biopsies are similar or different than uh, kidney, heart, liver transcripts. So that, is there a crossover or are, they, are, there, are there differences because it's just a different organ? I'm just curious just what your thoughts are or what you know about this. So as far as we know, um, the T-cell, the cognate T-cell inflammatory process is a very highly stereotyped organized process. We see the same process in uh, mouse models of multiple sclerosis in humans receiving um, a checkpoint inhibitors in their tumors. So that the, the T cell mediated rejection is a is a very structured inflammatory environment. We do not completely understand how it changes the tissue, but the tissue undergoes a very special injury response, and it has a direct effect on the parenchyma, which is probably not cytotoxic, but it's stereotyped. So the key molecules are top molecules in all of the different organs. T-cell mediated rejection is really quite a stereotype process, which is an advantage because when you're getting into tissues where the histology is, is much more difficult, like, um, like the lung, you can take information from the heart and the kidney and uh, it, give, it gives you a head start. Well, it sounds still like I don't know much about mucosal biopsies, but um, it sounds like you need not a lot of tissue. So in comparing some of the other work you've done with the molecular microscope, do you think you're going to be able to be moving back? Is it comparable tissue or less tissue? Well, uh, so the best biopsies we have is from the liver. We get about 10 micrograms of RNA. Okay. The liver is a beautiful, beautiful organ to work with. I from the kidney, core, <laughs> the, kidney core, the kidney core biopsy gives us about 3 micrograms. The single bite uh, mucosa or uh, the single transbronchial biopsy gives 1.5 micrograms. So it's a little challenging to work with that size. We think we should probably have two bites of those tissues, but we certainly won't need 10 or 15 the way the transbronchial biopsy is currently done. The issue really is not having, Roz, uh, you, you know this, the issue isn't, we could read a single cell, but we want to represent the tissue. So you have to deal with how much tissue do I need to get around the intrinsic heterogeneity in the tissue. We, we, so the transbronchial biopsy is performing poorly in that regard. We probably need two bites to get around that anyway, maybe three. 
the mucosal biopsy look, is looking very good with one. We'd be happier with two, but, uh, but it does look like it, it's, it's really getting an estimate of the intrinsic variability in the tissue you're biopsying is the key question. How much do you need to get around that? And we think we've got enough. Okay. Wow. This seems like it really could be a game changer. So thank you, Phil, and um, I really appreciate you presenting. We look really forward to your subsequent papers and your work in, in this area. So I think we, um, we will need, let's move on to the next paper, which is a lung transplant paper. And as you know, I'm not a lung transplanter, but um, this one was interesting and kind of dovetails a little bit from Phil's uh, paper. And the, this is the, um, the title, Pseudomonas aeruginosa and acute rejection independently increased risk of donor-specific antibodies after lung transplant. And this comes from the WashU group, um, who's a big lung, lung, uh, lung transplant program. And I'll really be very quick to summarize this um, because I think the key, the key points um, really are the main thing. So it's, it's been very much shown that, I mean, I don't think this is just lung transplant alone, but all organ transplant that pro-inflammatory events early after transplant increase the risk of DSA development. And one of the main pro-inflammatory events that occurs in this population, of course, are infections. And particularly in lung transplant where infection is a, a big cause of uh, morbidity and mortality. And uh, this group had done some work in the laboratory showing uh, a correlation uh, between, well, they, they observed that Pseudomonas aeruginosa infection induced allograft infiltrating neutrophils that would upregulate B7, CD80, and CD86. And this, the thought was that this could um, drive uh, antigen-specific T-cell responses and uh, maybe some B-cell responses. So they had a hypothesis that Pseudomonas infection her presence in the lung tree may lead to, or there, it may lead to DSA, which may lead to rejection, um, antibody-mediated rejection. So um, this is primarily a study where they had a, a large number of lip lung transplants performed where they measured DSA, and they also had um, aspirates, respiratory sample, BAL samples. They had 460 patients in their cohort of which 205, about 45% of them had DSA, and they compared them to those without DSA. And a cut to the chase, they found a correlation between pseudomonas uh, in the actual uh, respiratory isolate and the, and the development of DSA. And, and they found this on univariate and multivariate analysis that pseudomonas isolation uh, acute rejection and lymphocytic bronchiolitis remained independent risk factors for DSA. And they also found that there was a direct association between the number of positive cultures of pseudomonas and the risk of DSA development. And ultimately, there appeared to be a correlation between pseudomonas infection, uh, DSA, and risk factor for CLAD, which is kind of the ultimate bad thing in lung transplants or the kind of the chronic re rejection variant in, in lung transplant. And so um, I think this uh, was an interesting study. It doesn't really prove in my mind that pseudomonas directly 
causes uh, DSA development, um, that there's this, uh, there's certainly um, a lot of rationale behind it, but it, it seemed to be a very tight correlation. I thought the interesting part was just that the number of infectious organisms correlated uh, correlated directly with the risk of DSA development, which gives it more uh, more substantial uh, credence to this argument. And there's a nice editorial by uh, White and um, and Snyder um, that kind of conceptualized this and sort of how do you, you know do we um, you know, prevent try to prevent pseudomonas have some anti-infective pro preventive strategies would that help with DSA and rejection? I think those are kind of the next level of studies that could um, have a real clinical practice implication that that need to be done, uh, but certainly some some compelling interest. So that that was it for that study. I don't know if you have uh, any comments about their findings. Is this colonization by Pseudomonas or infection? Hard to know. They just, um, these were aspirate, BAL, like respiratory isolates. Yeah. So, yeah, it, 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 it um, they kind of don't really differentiate. It's basically just isolation from the fluid itself. Okay. okay. So, it, you know, presumably probably a lot of it is colonization. I think it would be really hard to distinguish colonization and true infection. Maybe just, they'd have, they didn't really highlight any clinical parameters like a, um, like a lobular infiltrate or something that, you know, correlate or some type of um, infection or some correlation with, you know, fevers or white count or something that would make it seem like this was an actual true infection rather than just um, being found there. But yeah, that's another, another potential issue that um, would need to be addressed as, as um, you know, you certainly probably don't want to over treat something that's just colonizing. You may, may run into uh, other problems with overuse of antibiotics. But regardless, pretty interesting. So more to come there. Um, some, I think lung transplant was a highlight of the uh, April AJT edition. But uh, Roz, do you want to talk about uh, the two papers? Yeah, sure. So I'll do, um, I, I'll do the Calvani paper first. This is the in situ multiplex immunofluorescence study of kidney allograft rejection highlighting it as a new tool to characterize the immune response in the accompanying editorial. So this group, which is in Paris and involved multiple hospitals, is studying the um, inflammatory cell infiltrates that we see uh, in this specific case in kidney transplantation. And as you guys may recall, that when we do the BAMF allograft pathology, we're scoring lymphocytes on, on H&E and PAS. We don't do immunophenotyping, although there's been multiple studies in the past looking at different infiltrates and different phenotypes and a correlation with, and unfortunately, Dr. Hallam was just on, his group has shown uh, NK cell transcripts associated with antibody-mediated rejection, and studies by myself and many others have looked at macrophage infiltration and its correlation with poor graft outcomes. So this group's hypothesis is that the composition and the locale of these different immune cells would differ between different types of rejection. And so their goal here was to study the phenotype and what they call repartition or the partitioning, the localization of these cells, whether they're intra or extravascular, and also the microvascular injury we see with, some of, with both uh, cellular and antibody-mediated rejection. 
And to do this, they use what's called multiplex immunofluorescent technology. And this is explained in the paper and also a really nice schematic and, and quick understanding of it in the accompanying editorial by Bellamy and Prost. And again, and there's a beautiful picture, figure one. So if you don't listen to anything else I have to say, if you're in your car, don't pull up the article. But when you get home, uh, take a look. Um, what basically happens is that this is facilitated by a specific reagent called opal. It's just a fluorophore that's conjugated to an agent, and it helps uh, enhance and localize signals when you use specific phenotypic antibodies. And this technique is very specific. They scan in the entire biopsy, and then they create what they call regions of interest, and then they accumulate and scan on each of these regions of interest. And, and so a whole biopsy is shown in panel 1A, and then individual regions of interest. One region of interest, for example, is shown in panel B, and they show the individual immunostains. So in this study, they use anti-CD34 to outline the vasculature. They use DAPI, which is a agent we use to stain nuclei. They use an NK antibody. They use a macrophage, you know, to detect macrophages and then uh, T cells, and then they merge them together, and you can see this beautiful picture with multiple colors in panel B. And then there, there's then additional programming that they undertake where they train the um, computer to do, um, and it's complicated because you first have to show each individual antibody and train the computer to identify it, and then you've got to do, is it intravascular or extravascular using the CD34 staining, then you look at segmentation of individual cells and where they're located based on the nuclei, and then you've got to show what the phenotypes are. And so they took a small group of biopsies, 20 in each group, 20 T-cell mediated, 20 antibody mediated, and five normal, and they go ahead and show a number of things, including the fact that, not surprisingly, that immune cell density is much higher in the rejection groups. But in fact, there's a lot of inflammation in both groups. And interestingly, if you look at the number of NK cells, which is relatively low in both, that there's actually proportionally more natural killer cells in T-cell mediated rejection, which has not been sort of the thought is that NK cells are mediating or participating in antibodies. So that's a little bit of a surprise. But that CD3 cells, which are T-cells and macrophages, are really important in both types of rejection. Um, they actually did some other kind of cutesy things looking at microvascular injury, the which is in figure three. They look at peritubular capillaritis and show that CD3 cells predominate in both T-cell and antibody-meter rejection. And, and it's not really different, but if you look at antibody-meter rejection, the NK cell populations and macrophages are greater in the peritubular capillaries when you quantitate them in antibody-mediated rejection versus T-cell-mediated rejection. So what are the key points? I think that there, there is heterogeneity in, this, in these inflammatory cell infiltrates, particularly CD3 cells and innate immune macrophages. Interestingly, and I didn't point this out, but it's in the paper that whether you have circulating DSA or not, because some of their antibody biopsies did not have classical DSA deposition, um, they don't show any sort of composition or localization differences. But again, the numbers are very small. Um, they establish a feasibility of doing this in one piece of tissue. You don't require frozen tissue. Um, you can just do this in um, formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissue, which 
pathologists love because you have that block sitting around and you don't have to have frozen tissue. It establishes the use of this sort of multi-parameter image analysis to have automated counting. It improves reproducibility potentially. Uh, it's a nice complement to all the transcription studies that groups like Phil have done where you take a whole biopsy and grind it up, here you actually can see where the cells are. Um, and it also points out that NK cells are really not specific for antibody-mediated injury. I think certainly, and, and the editorial points out also, as cool as this is, and that you could apply this to academic pathology labs, you have to realize it's time-consuming. It's challenging to do this cell segmentation. Um, when you have areas that are highly clustered cells, um, I think it's kind of difficult to do that. Um, the tissue segmentation, again, is based on CD4, which is the vascular uh, endothelial cell marker. And if you've got significant tissue damage or inflammation, um, that may be more difficult. But again, really nice um, graphic in figure one of the editorial, again, showing another workflow um, with a different set of markers that another group has done. So a uh, kind of an exciting kind of new pathology um, opportunity. And again, you know, these automated kind of um, dependent on computer analysis is really becoming a part and parcel of how biopsies will be um, analyzed, I think, in the future. Yeah, I was, I was curious what your thoughts were in terms of how this might be implemented in standard uh, histology reads. Is it just, it seems like this is pretty time consuming to be able to um, use this as more of a research tool, but do you, could you foresee it being? I think you could. I mean, I think that, you know, when we first started thinking about doing these things, it was very difficult. And again, granted, standard inmerfluorescence is done very quickly nowadays because you have these automated staining, you have automated mm -hmm. staining on frozen tissue. And so I think the, the issue here is really sort of training the individual biopsies and, and clearly the ability to distinguish normal from abnormal and going from there. And I think as the technology becomes more user-friendly, it's like, did I ever imagine I have an iPhone in 1992? No, I didn't. But, you know, <laughs> will I have to wait 20 years for this? No, I don't think so. But I think the technology is there and, and, and several companies, particularly the company here involved in this particular paper has really been in, involved um, as sort of a leader in, in developing the tools and the scanners to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. So more to come in terms oh. of, um, you know, being sort of practical. Yeah. If you don't have any other questions, I'll move on to the yeah, next. And, and the next is our last paper. It's a brief communication by Wong and colleagues. Uh, this is actually from a group in, at Children's of Boston and a multidisciplinary group that has interest in, in skin grafts and skin graft rejection. Uh, this is recombinant human ADAM TS13 treatment and anti-net strategies to enhance skin allograft survival. So in this brief report, they use a very stringent model of mouse graft transplant rejection. And when I was in the lab, we used to use this, as we used to call it the, you know, first of all, it was easy to do, but it was the most stringent model. So if you were getting cold feet or, you know, you had a limited amount of resources, you could test whatever you were doing in the lab on this one model, and if it looked like it was working, you were prolonging graft survival, then you would sort of delve into the more vascularized models. Or people would use skin grafts to document tolerance of long-term therapies that they were doing in the lab. So 
Here they use the sort of standard stringent uh, disparate model between donor and recipient, but their clinical consideration is the idea that trauma, whether it's from burns or battlefield trauma, um, there's a clinical need for allogeneic skin grafts that individuals may not have enough skin or may have so much trauma they can't provide their own skin. And so, for example, in the, in the battlefield, you would slap on a skin graft in someone who had significant skin damage, and the idea is that you may have to replace it or, or prolong its survival until they can meet further medical attention. So the setup here was almost that you could look at the role of inflammation and microthrombosis and see if you could mitigate it, not so much permanently, but at least as a survival strategy, I think, to, to the next step. So some of you may remember Adam TS13 is a is a metalloproteinase, a cleavase enzyme. It cleaves von Will, up the, that large molecular weight von Willebrand's factor. And von Willebrand's factor in and of itself is a very inflammatory and prothrombotic substance. And some of you may recall that when you have deficiency of Adam TS13 or inhibition of Adam TS13, that you can develop a TTP kind of like conditions. And certainly in liver transplant, Josh, and you may know this, that a reduction in in, a, in Adam TS13, if it's acquired, for example, may be associated with rejection and or acute ischemia, at least in, in liver models. And, and von Willebrand's factor is also an important chemotractant for neutrophils, and they bind to these neutrophil extracellular traps or nets. Now, I didn't know much about nets. I knew quite a bit about Adam TS13, but these nets actually contain cytotoxic proteins and are associated and localized with tissue tissue damage and they delay wound healing and they can worsen sepsis. And there's been some association of these nets with mouse um, lung transplant rejection. And they've also been identified in, in bronchioveolar lavage fluid of um, individuals with primary lung dysfunction and human transplant. And another important aspect is that there is a whole biology of how these things form. There are some rate limiting steps to their development and you can actually uh, infuse DNAs1 um, and disrupt nets structurally. Um, and in a couple of uh, animal models they cite, they can actually improve graft function. So their hypothesis in this paper was that if you limit net formation, if you, mit if you mitigate net, net netosis, as they call it, you can minimize inflammation and microthrombosis and delay graft function. And so I think the, the money shot is really figure one, where they actually... Uh, take an allogeneic model in the top panel, and then they infuse Adam TS13, and they delay graft function, uh, graft failure significantly from a mean of about four, 12 days, is my guess, based on the figure, to about 15. And you'd say, wow, that's not great, Roz, but that's really significant. And if you look at, they identify significant inflammation present in the presence of without the treatment being present. Um, and then when you give the treatment, you really reduce the development of these nets and you reduce inflammation. And they use some other models that are shown uh, in figure two, where they look at animals that are deficient in this enzyme, uh, polygufidopeptidyl arginase deaminase, which is a rate limiting step in net formation. So you can actually use uh, animals that are knockouts as recipients. And when you use them, as shown in panel D, uh, 3D, you can actually prolong survival. And it's not significantly improved when you add Adams TS13 recombinant 
and maybe marginally more. It's, it says statistically significant, but maybe a little bit more when you add DNAase. So just to sort of summarize, they identify that inhibitors to this netosis and net degradation uh, and, 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 pro, and improving or promoting net degradation can lead to a very stringent model of allograft rejection. And this is really a, a potentially new way to look at graft survival and mitigate the strong allimmune signals present and whether there's any efficacy in um, thrombotic microangiopathy isn't clear. I think the one, uh, and this was also pointed out in the editorial, there is a little bit of how does ADAMTS13 reduce neutrophils and net and skin allografts, and they don't really show a, a direct causal mechanism, but it's certainly an association. And the authors of the editorial, uh, Sophie Burrard and uh, Nuala Mooney, also point out that there was a recent study of metoprolol, a beta agonist antagonist, that appears to mitigate neutrophil infiltration and wonder whether this was another way of mitigating nets, that there, maybe there's a whole other cavalcade of pharmacologic therapies that are currently actually approved for other reasons that might be able to mitigate these nets. And, and again, I'm not a person that studied them before, but certainly the bevy of literature here is really sort of a novel pathway to, to cytotoxic injury um, within vascularized grafts. Yeah, definitely. I uh, could see a lot of potential application to solid organ transplant, and hopefully that's the direction where this will move into. It, it, it'd be um, there's just a lot of mechanisms here that could be explored that I, I don't think I've seen even looked at in, in solid organs. So, no, and I think there's a whole, this, this to me kind of woke me up because there's a whole part of science here going on that we don't often get to think about where kind of stuck in our own, you know, maintenance immunosuppression kind of pathways and injury pathways. And I think when you have very strong data and a very stringent immunological model like the skin net graph, um, it really sort of supports, it, it is sort of the money shot. It really sort of supports the opportunity to, to, to test this in other solid organs that are fully vascularized where these mechanisms may be important, whether it's where ischemic injury may in particular be a, a problem as well. Great. Well, I thank you, Roz, and thank you, Phil. I think this will close our uh, podcast for this month. And please, everybody, uh, stay safe and healthy out there. And we'll see you back in May. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.